Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. And the Bible says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you once again today, and we thank you for this privilege that you have given us to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, again for the freedom that we enjoy to be able to do that in this nation without threat of violence or imprisonment, and that we can come loudly and proudly and proclaim the truth of your word and the gospel of Christ. And Lord, we want to honor those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for that to happen. But Lord, we also want to be reminded that true freedom never comes unless the Son sets you free. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that in spite of our sinfulness, that you came and you made a way for us to be free and be free indeed. And we give you glory and honor for that. Lord, we ask that in these next few moments as we go through your word, that you would speak to us through the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, you would lead us into all truth, that you would open our ears to hear, give us minds to perceive and comprehend, and let this word become the implanted truth in our inner being that would change the way we think and the way we live. And as always, Lord, use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus has made his way back down toward Jerusalem. You know, he was going up toward uh, Capernaum and he was in Galilee and went to a wedding there. Now the Passover time had come and every year when the Passover came, 
Thousands upon thousands of people made their way to Jerusalem, in particular Jews. There are some who estimate that Jerusalem probably had a population, it depends on who you read, between 100 to 200,000 people normally. But whenever the Passover took place and the pilgrimage began, that, that 200,000 or so swelled up to almost a million people in Jerusalem. So you can imagine uh, how hectic how busy, uh, how crowded it may have been during this particular time. And so it was a spectacle to see. And Jesus, being the good Jewish man that he was, made his way to Jerusalem to uh, participate in the Passover as God had asked Israel to do ever since the Exodus, to be a memorial for how God brought them out of slavery, how God brought them ultimately into uh, the promised land. And of course, we know that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover, and we'll get to that uh, in, in, in several months as we work our way through the Gospel of John. But we come to today, at least the first part of this, is one of two temple cleansings that we see in the Scripture. And there, there's debate about this, and some people think that maybe they're the same one that uh, John is told in a different way and that he's put in a different place. Because if you look at it, John has put this cleansing at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry when the synoptics, the cleansing we read in, in the synoptic gospels is at the end of Jesus's ministry. And, and I think just again, from reading other people and uh, examining the language of the text, that these are two separate events. Because you and I have to understand, this is what we experience in this passage, the money changers and the people selling the, the sheep and the goat and the oxen, is probably not a one-off thing. It was something that went on all the time because people had to travel many miles to get Jerusalem. And can you imagine if you, you know, in our day, uh, if you were in your car with your three or four children or your couple of children, or maybe your one child, and then you have all the other baggage that you have to take. Just imagine if you were living in the first century and you didn't have a car, right? If you're lucky, you might have had a donkey, uh, but you walked with your kids. Can you imagine bringing animals with you on a journey where you had to go, you know, hundreds of miles to get to Jerusalem? It would be almost overwhelming for you and very inconvenient for you. So what was happening in, in the region, the selling of the oxen and all those things, was really a convenience so that people, when they came, they could buy the animals that were required for their sacrifice. And so, uh, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily that what was happening in the selling of the animals was a bad thing. What we're going to find out is the bad thing was where they were selling the animals and why they ultimately were selling the animals. So not to get too far ahead of ourselves in the text. In this text, though, if you look at the flow of it, if you, if you listened while we were reading it, you'll see that Jesus really has three confrontations in this text. The first confrontation uh, is with the, the merchants, right, and the masses of people that are there in the court of the, of the Gentiles uh, where this is taking place. The second confrontation that we see is Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders, the temple authorities, to say, why is it that you did, you did what you just did? And then the third confrontation is when Jesus peers into the heart of the masses and sees what's in their, in their heart. 
And so we kind of break it down into that, uh, into those three paragraphs, if you will. And we'll, we'll look at Jesus's purging of the temple. We'll look at Jesus's prophesying his own death, burial, and resurrection. And then we'll look at Jesus as he peers into the hearts of humanity. But we also need to note, just, just in a broad way, in this text, on display is the, is the authority and the divinity of Jesus Christ. You remember John told us in, in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, these things, in other words, the, the, the things I've written in this book, in this, in this gospel, these things have been written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in knowing you may believe in him and that you may have life by believing in his name. And so John for us is laying out evidence in chapter two that this is the son of God and he has the authority to do what he says he's going to do as it relates to the redeeming of humanity in Christ. And so we see his omnipotence on display. Can you imagine when Jesus goes into this temple, the crowds and throngs of people that are there and you see this one man drive all these animals and all these people out of this temple court. That's the power of God. And then we also see his omnipotence on display when he's confronted by these Jewish leaders who say, why are you doing this? Because the Jewish leaders are the one who sanctioned what was going on. And it's in his authority as God, the son of the father whose house it is. And it's by his power that he's able to do it. And it's by his power that he'll declare that I'm able to raise myself from the dead. And then we also see his omniscience on display because what does he do when he gets to the masses of people? He knows all people, John says, and he doesn't need anybody to testify to him or witness to him about a person because he knows what's in the heart of every human being. We've already seen that, haven't we, with Nathaniel. You remember, he says to Nathaniel, a Jew in whom there is no guile, right? There is no deceit. And he says, I saw you under the fig tree. So we've already seen glimpses of this authority and power and omniscience in Jesus. And John is doubling down on that evidence so that we will see that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And seeing, we could believe. And in believing, we would have life eternal. So let's begin with Jesus' purging of the temple and just kind of want you to walk through this text with me. So we begin in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. We've already made mention of this. This Passover goes back to Exodus when God led the children of, of, of Egypt or Israel out of Egypt. And in the leading of them out, he showed his power and his authority over all of creation because every plague that came in the Exodus uh, was against a, God, a so-called God of the Egyptians. And when he brings the last plague, the 10th plague, this is the where the Passover comes from because in so doing, he says, take the lamb, sacrifice it, take the blood, place it on the doorpost and the lentil. And when you place it there and the destroyer comes through, I will not allow the destroyer to come in your house. But he also give them a commemoration. He says, while all this is going on, you prepare that lamb that you have slaughtered and you feast on it. 
in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this calamity, you feast on it. Man kind of reminds you of Psalm 23, doesn't it? Was the Lord remind us in Psalm 23? Even though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then the very next phrase, he says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemy. That's the picture of the Exodus, is it not? And so we know that Jesus in the upper room when you read, get, get over to Luke chapter 22, at the end of this celebration of the Passover on his third Passover meal in his public ministry, Jesus says, this bread that we're eating, that's my body that's broken for you. And when you eat this, you do it in remembrance of the sacrifice that I made for you. And he took the cup and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant that's going to be poured out for you. So Jesus is the fulfillment of what is happening in this Passover. But Jesus came to fulfill the law, didn't he? He lived as a normal Jewish man. And he did everything that the law required of a normal Jewish man to do. And then he goes on and we see in verse 14. And in the temple, now y'all underline the word temple. We see it twice in this paragraph. And then the next paragraph, we're going to see the word temple three times. So this temple is important. And I'm going to try not to belabor every word as we go through this, but each one of them brings up greater truths in God's word. We studied about the, the tabernacle. That's really the, the, the foundation of where the temple comes from. And the tabernacle in Exodus was the meeting place that God met with his people, right? He says, this is where I will meet with you. And we, we talked about that thread as you go through the Bible. That is God's ultimate desire is to meet with his people, to be with his people. We see the ultimate fulfillment of that in Revelation when God the Father steps, uh, uh, brings down the new Jerusalem and uh, heaven and earth in that sense become one. And we see in there God permanently with his people and his people permanently with him. But we also see a glimpse of something that took place uh, related to this in John chapter one. You remember in John chapter one, John tells us in the beginning, the word was with God, the word was God. And then he, if we go down to verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh. And your English translation says, he dwelt among us. Literally, the word that is used there is tabernacle. He pitched his tent among us. And so we see that shadow of this thread of God with us, Emmanuel, in this tabernacle temple motif. And that's why it's so important. This is God's meeting place with his people. For Israel, this was significant, right? Because this was the permanent place. This is where God has said, I'm going to meet with you in this spot on planet Earth. And they built the temple right there in that spot. And people came off from all over to meet with God in this place. And we, we don't have that same kind of sense necessarily with our church building. Well, we ought to have a sense of God's presence and meeting God in this place. But for them... This was the place where God met with them in a real practical sense. And for us, God meets with us through the 
person of the Holy Spirit, right? We are the temple of God and he indwells us and meets with us. That's another sermon for another day. But this idea of the temple was important. It was the house of God. It represented the throne room of God here on earth. And this is where the Jews went to celebrate this Passover. And this is where Jesus was to celebrate this Passover. And he goes into this temple and he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, I've already said that it wasn't necessarily, the evil wasn't necessarily that they were selling the animals or exchanging the money. The evil comes in as to where they were doing it and why they were doing it. Where they were doing it, you have to read in other places to get this because John doesn't bring it out explicitly in the text. But where they were doing it is in the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was the, this was the only place the Gentiles could go. If they were a proselyte, they were a God-fearing Gentile, they believed that the, the God of Israel was the only one true and living God, they couldn't go into the inner court. The closest they could get was in the temple of, or in the court of the Gentiles. It was the place that they were to come and to worship the one true and living God. And let me ask you, if, if you came here this morning and, and there, was a, there was a fair going on, right? And we had vendors everywhere in this place. And you came expecting to worship God. How disrupting would that be for you if there were vendors all over this place hawking their wares and you're trying to worship the Lord? That's the kind of picture that we see here. These, this thing probably started outside the temple at one time. It was probably along the way, along the thoroughfares as people came in. But out of convenience, maybe the religious leaders, the, the leaders of the temple, the people who were in charge, the priests, they says, hey, why don't we just move it into the quarter of the Gentiles? And, I, they, and again, I'm just conjecture. Maybe they figured out there's a way for them to profit off of this if they brought it into the court of the Gentiles. And who cares about the Gentiles anyway, right? Would be their idea, right? Gentiles for them were lower than dogs. But praise God, God cared about the Gentiles, right? Yeah, every one of us ought to say amen because that's why we're here. Because we're Gentiles and God cared about us and he's always cared about the Gentiles. Throughout the history of redemption, God has had a mind and an eye for the Gentiles. There's some who say that they may have been charging up to 12 and a half percent commission, either on the selling of the animals or the, the changing of the money. The changing of the money is important because every Jewish male over to the age of 20 had to give a temple tax or, or an offering to the temple for the maintenance of the temple. And they could only do it in the designated temple currency. And so whatever currency they came with from out of town, they had to get exchanged. And these money changers were charging them, some say, exorbitant amounts of money. That's why we read later on in, in, in uh, Matthew, I think it is, where Jesus has a different thing he says when he clears the temple. He says, Does, don't make my father's house, you know, my father's house should be a house of prayer and you have turned it into a den of robbers or thieves. So that, that's the sinful aspect of it, where they were doing it and why they were doing it. It wasn't to honor God. It wasn't to, it wasn't to be a convenience for the people from the perspective of the merchants. It was to make money is what it was from the perspective of the mer merchants and an exorbitant amount of money in this place where people should be worshiping God and in particular the Gentiles should be allowed to worship the Lord. So look what the Lord does. 
He plaits a whip. And making a whip of cords. This, this was not a fit of anger and rage that wasn't governed. He contemplated everything that he was going to do. And he made himself a whip and he goes into this temple and he drives all of them out of the temple, the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturns their tables. And then he tells those who sold pigeons there in verse 16, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Now, let me ask you something. This doesn't correlate, or let me say something to you. I said, let me ask you something, but let me just say something to you. This doesn't correlate with the sissified Jesus that we portray in our culture today. Do you think a wimpy, sissified man could have walked into this place and drove out all of these people? One man? When there's thousands of people in this place. Jesus demonstrated his authority and the authority of the Father. And these people ran out of that place. That's the same Jesus that's coming back in Matthew chapter 19. And when he speaks, the war is going to be over. Not even a sword will be raised because with the sword of his mouth, he will destroy his enemies. And when he comes, he's going to judge sin, just like he's judging sin in this moment. And so, another interesting aspect of this, you remember we started off by saying John has a point and a purpose. The point and the purpose is to point us to Jesus, tell us that he is the Son of God, he is the Christ, that you believing, believe, you ought to believe in him and in believing you have eternal life. And listen to this phrase in the last, the last verse, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written. When Jesus does this, their mind goes back to the Old Testament. Their mind goes back to what the Father has already inspired to be written about the suffering servant that was going to come, the Messiah. Zeal for your house will consume me. And so, these evidences are mounting up and his disciples are believing in who he is. And the same thing is happening for people throughout the centuries as they read God's word. That's why, our job, that's why Paul writes the way he does in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. How important is it for we as Christians to share the truth of God's word. Man, we, we, we ought to have programs, right? We ought, we ought to do things and have events in order to build a bridge and to make an opportunity. But I'm telling you, the most important thing we need to do as a church, the most important thing we need to do as individual Christians is we need to speak the truth of God's word because in it is life. And it's through the word of God that men and women and boys and girls come to faith in Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Two things we need to ask ourselves about this one simple paragraph. Powerful paragraph, but simple. 
Jesus, look, look, Jesus, two things I thought about, put it this way. Jesus demonstrates his passionate anger against sin. You guys, you guys have heard me say this before and people don't like it. God hates sin. It goes even further than that, right? Psalm 5, Psalm 7. God hates sin. And sin is the reason he's coming in judgment. Jesus hated sin. I know he had mercy on sinners, praise God, because I am one, right? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. He has mercy and grace on sinners, but he hates sin. It drove him to anger. Let me ask you this question. Do you hate sin? Now look, I'm not talking about other people's sin, okay? It's easy for us to look out in the world and say, I hate that person's sin, right? That old, that old sinner over there, hate everything they're doing. Turn, turn, turn the mirror back on you. Let me ask you this. Do you hate your sin? Do you even realize that you have sin in your life? Or are you so comfortable in your sinfulness that you don't even think about it anymore? God hates sin. Jesus hates sin. And if we claim to be the followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to love the things he loves and hate the things he hates. Most especially any sin that may raise its ugly head in our own life. That's why Paul writes to us, mortify the flesh. Reckon it as dead. I got a new nature, right? And that new nature wants to follow after God. But I understand Paul in Romans 7. I still drag this old flesh that's prone to sin. And I need to be proactive. And I need to mortify this sinful flesh. Not give it any authority in my life. And that's easy preaching and hard living. I understand it. And the only way to do that is be on your knees before God and be in his word because it is through the truth of the word that the Lord sanctifies us and conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. And the second thing I saw in this passage was Jesus's passionate appeal or his passionate love for authentic worship. I mean, how many times in the Psalms have we seen where the Lord calls all of humanity to worship him. And I think in our society, we have so dumbed down and watered down what it means to worship the Lord. For us, it is so flippant, such a flippant thing we do on Sunday mornings a lot of times. I know I'm not talking about the folks in this room. But in general, and as Christians, right? Listen, listen to what uh, one of the writers from Ligonier Ministry says about this. 
He says, strikingly absent from much of Christian worship today is an atmosphere of reverence that takes God seriously and seeks to glorify him according to his word. And ask yourself that question. Do you take God seriously today when you come to this place to worship? Do you take God seriously every day in your own individual worship? Do you revere him? I get it. Jesus tells us, Abba, Father, right? But also, holy, righteous, transcendent God. Do you honor him in your life as you worship Do you honor him when you come to this place and worship him? Do you understand what Moses had to understand? Take off your shoes because you are standing on holy ground when you're in the presence of God. And I think today we've lost a little bit of that. Listen to what Bruce Bruce Leafblad, this is how he defines worship. It says, true worship happens when we set our mind's attention and our heart's affection on the Lord, praising him for who he is and what he's done. Is that how we come to the Lord when we come together corporately in worship? That our mind's attention is focused on him and him alone. And our heart's affection is pouring out with love and thanksgiving to him for who he is and what he has done? Or is our worship more about, I need to be more comfortable in this place. You know, the temperature needs to be right. The pews need to feel right. The music needs to sound the way I want it to sound. The preacher needs to be like I want him to be, not too loud, not too soft, not too long, not too short. Right? Isn't that what we've turned worship into? About me? You know, what is it that I come here to get out of this? And I get it. God, God blesses us and ministers to us in worship. But our heart in worship ought to be to come before the living God and focus on him. As Paul says in Colossians, set our minds on the things that are above and to love him passionately with all that we are for who he is and what he's done. All right, moving on. Number two. Jesus prophesies about his death and resurrection. Now, when Jesus drives all these people out of the temple, presumably the religious leaders come to him, the temple leaders come to him. Because you got temple police there Temple guards, rather. You got Romans perched up watching what's going on to see if any ruckuses occur that they need to attend to. And just the implication of this paragraph leads us to believe that these religious leaders, these these temple leaders, are the ones who sanction what just happened. And so they come to Jesus. And this validates for me that this is a separate cleansing than the one we read later on in the Synoptic Gospels. Because here they come to him asking, who are you and what authority do you have to do what you're doing? Now, later on, 
when you read Matthew's account of the cleansing in the end, at the end of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the people are proclaiming, this is who this is, right? He is the prophet. He is Jesus, the Christ. They know well who he is. And so it at least validates in my mind that there's a distinction between when these happen. Here, early on, they weren't sure about Jesus. Later on, they knew exactly who he was, whether they believed it or not. But anyway, they come to him and they say, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, by what authority do you come in here to do what you do? What other sign did they need? This man comes into the temple and drives all of them out. That's a pretty good sign to me that he has some authority, right? Because not, there's no mere man by himself that could have done, done that unless he's the God man. But they want to see a sign. What authority do you have to do these things? And so listen to how Jesus answers them. Jesus says to them, or he answers them, Destroy this temple in three days and I'll destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews, again, thinking earthly, just like Nicodemus, we're going to run into him next, next week, right? He's thinking in the temporal and the earthly. These Jews look at him and it depends on your translation. There is a textual variant at this point as to how it reads. The ESV and most other modern translations say this it took 46 years, or this temple's been 46 years in the making. Some translations may have this temple was built 46 years ago. But if you just look at the language, I think it lends more to the idea that there's what they're saying. It took 46 years to get this temple to where it is. And you're going to come bring it back together in three days? Now that would be a sign, wouldn't it? But the greater sign is what he told them he would do. Because John tells us, hey, he was talking about the temple of his body. What a powerful sign that is. You know, I got to thinking about this. Because the Lord's used this analogy in other places, right? He uses it. He's going to tell them, listen. Here's the sign I'm going to give you. Because later on, Jews are going to ask for another sign. He said, here's the only sign I'm going to give you, the sign of Jonah. He was three days in the belly of the well. And he came out. Jesus was talking about his death. Jesus was saying to them, I and I alone have the authority to give up my life and to raise it up again. That's the sign I'm going to give to you. And what a, what a powerful sign that is. It, it's one thing to, 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 you know, as Donald was talking about the other night, put a person's ear back on, right? It's one thing to make a man see. It's one thing to, to heal a withered hand or to tell, tell a paralytic to get up and walk. It's a totally, entirely different thing to bring a dead person back to life. Now, Jesus did that, right? On more than one occasion, there were people who were on the verge of death or had already died, and he brought them back. And it's a totally other thing to bring your own self back from the dead. And Jesus did it. That's the witness of today. 
That's why Jesus says what he says in Matthew or Luke chapter 16 when he's talking to the rich man or when, when Abraham, Jesus sharing a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. Abraham is speaking, but that's why the language is what it is. Because the rich man says, send back Lazarus from the dead so that my brothers will see and they'll believe. And Abraham says, they got the, the law and the prophets. They got the word of God. He says, no, but if they see someone come back from the dead, they'll believe. And Abraham says, if they don't believe the law and the prophets, they won't even believe somebody to come back from the dead. And how true is that statement today? Because over 2,000 years ago, a man hung on a cross. A man was laid in a tomb. And three days later, that tomb was empty. And there's still people today who do not believe. What about you today? Do you believe? Do you trust him? Have you heard the word of Christ and believed? His disciples did. Look, look what it says at the end of verse 21. It says his disciples remembered that Jesus had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They believed what the Old Testament, as we call it, prophesied about Jesus, about the Messiah coming and dying and being raised again. And they believed what Jesus said. Have you believed what Jesus said and what Jesus has done? We'll move on to the last, last point. It parallels really with where we're at because that's really what Jesus is ultimately saying. Do you believe who I am? And do you believe that I can do what I say I can do? Because what happens, Jesus in this last few uh, couple verses, he says, now when he, wa when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, when they saw the signs that he was doing. So a lot of people, when they saw the signs, they believed, right? What they saw. But look at what Jesus, what John says about Jesus in verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust. Now, the English makes it a little bit, uh, doesn't catch the significance of this, because the same word that we just read about believing, pistuo is the Greek word. They believed, but Jesus didn't believe them. He didn't believe their believing. Why is that? Look what he says. Because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about him, about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And that got me to thinking when I thought about that passage. What, what, what's going on? What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying everything we already know. One is that he knows all, right? We see glimpses of that all throughout his ministry. He is God in the sense he knows all, and he can peer into your heart and know what you're thinking. And he knows the validity of your belief or the lack thereof. And that's what he's saying here. These people had superficial belief in Jesus. 
They have what I like to call demon faith. Do you understand? James writes about this. James says, you believe in God? Well, you do well because the demons believe and tremble. And you think, that ought to set us back when we read that passage. Then how in the world can I ever have true belief in God? Because it wasn't like the, the, the demons knew before Jesus did anything. You remember when he encounters the, par- I mean, the de- demonic people? More, more than one time we read that they say, hey, we know who you are. And it's not our time yet. So what are you doing here? Don't send us to the abyss. They knew. And it was more than just seeing the signs and knowing. They knew without a doubt that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's not enough to change them. Think about that. All right, we got to close. I got one minute because we got to go eat. But hear me. Jesus reminds us in another place in the gospel. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of God. That ought to cause you to pause and ponder this idea of belief. What does it mean to have saving faith in Jesus Christ? What Jesus is ultimately telling us in his word, and, and the reformers picked up on this, it's not enough to have a mental assent, right, to the content of the gospel. Noticia is the Latin word. We have to have a mental assent to the content of the gospel, that Jesus is who he says he is, right? What, what the truth of the gospel states. We have, a, have, we have to have a mental assent, our mental understanding of that content. But that's not enough. The old preachers used to say, people are 18 inches from heaven, right? The difference between their head and their heart. What were they saying? They were saying really what these reformers would say. You got to have a mental assent to the truth of it. You got to have, you have to have heard the truth of it. And then you got to have a census. You got to believe the content of the truth, that it is in fact true. It's not enough to know just what the Bible says. You got to actually believe that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. Now, if you stop right there, you have demon faith because the demons know the truth. They know the content and they believe it to be true. You have to have fiducia. That's the third Latin word. And fiducia says that I have submitted to, trusted to, put my assurance in this truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. I have bowed my knee to him. I have yielded to him as Lord and Savior of my life. That's the difference between demonic faith and belief and saving faith. Because even the demons know exactly who he is and they assent to the truth of it, but they don't bow the knee to it. They're in rebellion against him. 
And until you come to the place where you bow the knee to Jesus Christ, you have not come to the place of saving faith. And when you bow the knee to Jesus Christ, he is Lord of your life. He governs how you live in this world. And if there is incongruence in what you claim with your mouth and how you live with your life, you need to come back and do what Paul says, to examine yourself to be sure that you're in the faith. What about you today? I would encourage every one of you to examine your lives today to be sure that you're in the faith, including the person standing here. Right? I know I'm saved. Nobody you know that you're saved. There's nothing wrong with going back and examining your life. If it was wrong, Paul wouldn't have said it. All right? Because in God's word. I'm going to pray. You're going to have an opportunity to respond. Do you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And have you believed the truth of it? And have you bowed your knee to him as Savior today? That's what John's driving at. That's his whole point in this gospel. For his first century audience and for his 21st century audience. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this time you've given us, this opportunity to be in your word. I ask, Father, that you would be with every person in this room, every person under the sound of my voice. Have them examine it themselves to be sure that they are in the faith. I pray, Father, that you solidify those who are the faithful. You strengthen our faith. And that translates into a, a life that is obedient to you, no matter the cost. Lord, for those who are lost right now, that you would arrest them in their heart and their mind as you did Paul on the road to Damascus. You will drive them to their knees. You will open their eyes to the truth of who you are and what you've done and that they would bow their knee to you. You have your way and your will with us in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen.